Welcome to the Metal Miner Podcast. I'm Taras Berezowski, Managing Editor at Azul Partners. Today, we continue our series that we're calling Manufacturing Trade Policy Confidential. Our guest is Barry Zeckelman, CEO of Zeckelman Industries. Barry made a life-changing choice back in college. He quit to take over the company his father had begun and turned it into the largest structural tube manufacturer in North America. But it wasn't quick or easy. The business was was not doing well at the time. He never really got it off the ground. So when I, I walked into the plant, you know, there's some old equipment and five employees. Uh, ironically, at the time, you know, they, they knew my dad had passed away and they were playing poker. So I, I, I rounded him up and, and had a chat with him and said that, you know, you know I'm the new boss and we're going to run this business. And, you know, it really started from the ground floor. I learned how to run the equipment. I learned how to load the trucks. I did all the paperwork and literally slept there uh, uh, sometimes at night. Fast forward to today and it's still not easy. Barry has some choice words for a lot of different parties when it comes to how the U.S. steel industry has fared since the early 2000s. Whether it's South Korea, China, or even other American industry sectors, no one is safe when placed in Barry's sights. But he wants to make clear that he's no crybaby. As he sees it, he's standing up for the little guy. His company may do more than a billion dollars of business a year, but to him, it's not about that at all. I'm not sitting here crying poor. Our company does well. The question is, is how much better could we do? How much more could we do? You know, why are we worried about people being employed in South Korea in some, you know, engine that was built just to export their steel when we've got people that are looking for jobs and looking for higher incomes here? It's not about Zeckelman Industries. It's about communities. I would be proud to have another thousand teammates working for us, making 50, 60, 80 grand, 100 grand a year, and having their, their, their health care covered, and having a 401k contribution. That's what this is about. It's no secret that Barry is one of the most vocal business leaders when it comes to trade policy. Listen in to Lisa Reisman's conversation with Barry Zeckelman. Barry, I would love before we kind of dive into the subject of international trade, just to learn some more and kind of share with our listeners the sto- your story, your personal story, and your story through um, the different companies that you've been with and um, and how you are where you are today. Would sure. You? Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So I, I guess uh, it, you know, it goes back to, to really 1986 when um, I was in my first year of college uh, not knowing what I was uh, going to go into when, uh, you know, I had the, the sudden passing of my father. And my father had a small tubing business that he got into, never really got off the ground. It was losing money. But I knew about it. I knew how tubing was made. And I was a pretty mechanically inclined kid. And um, I, I got into the business. I, I looked at it, you know, really uh, by chance as a way to get get out of college and do something else with my life. Uh, everybody um, uh, that were friends of my father, the lawyers and, and business partners and, and other things said, look, you know, sell this thing and go back to school. But I just couldn't do that. You know, it was a dream of his. Um, the business was was not doing well at the time. He never really got it off the ground. So when I, I walked into the plant, you know, there's some old equipment and five employees uh, ironically, at the time, you know, they, they knew my dad had passed away and they were playing poker. So I, I, I rounded them up and, and had a chat with them and said that, you know, you know, I'm the new boss and we're going to run this business. And, 
you know, it really started from the ground floor. I learned how to run the equipment. I learned how to load the trucks. I did all the paperwork and literally slept there uh, uh, sometimes at night. So 20-hour days were, were not uncommon. But, you know, you learned a lot about, you know, just what goes on on that plant floor. And I think a real a real turning point as as we started to build the business, and there were a lot of little things that happened along the way uh, uh, to help us out. But probably the biggest turning point for us was when the employees came to me and said, "You know, we need to get paid more." And I, I really, you know, had no way of paying them more. I looked at them and I said, "Look, I need I need more production. I need these machines to not stop." And they said, "Well, if you give us two dollars an hour more, these machines will never stop." And I, I said, you know, so it was kind of the, the, the chicken or the egg, right? I said, well, if, if they never stopped, I'd be able to give you $2 an hour more. Anyways, I, I came back and I thought about a gain sharing program. At the time, I, you know, I, I, an uneducated guy, I didn't know anything about these things, hadn't read about them, but just came up with a plan in my head that, you know, I could pay them based on performance. And uh, I explained it to him and it worked. You know, it took, it took a lot of buy-in. It took a lot of time. Um, but once it started rolling, uh, you know, it, it became this, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. It wasn't 50 cents an hour. It was then a dollar and $2 and $4 and $6 an hour paid out weekly. And, and really why I'm telling this story is because it's really defined our company and how, how we, you know, go about doing business today and operate our plants and, and respect our teammates, you know, I recognize very early on that it's wonderful to buy great equipment and have things, but you can do a lot uh, with older assets because your most valuable asset really is your people. And by properly engaging them, empowering them, motivating them, give them giving them a, a goal and a stake and, and, and their ability to be involved with the business at every level and make a difference – was probably the most powerful business tool that we ever employed. And uh, we took off. Uh, the company in 1986 did $2 million in sales that year and, and was losing money for the first eight months. Um, eight months later, we turned a profit and we consistently made more profit every year for 20 plus years. And, um, you know, grew the company really to uh, a behemoth. You know, there was no reason for us to to survive, guys could have really crushed us. But, you know, we just operated with common sense. Uh, we did what was right for us. We didn't worry about anybody else except our teammates and our customers. Uh, I didn't worry about the competition. And we just kept going and, and trudging ahead. And, and we had no preconceived notions of, of, you know, how things should be done. We just did what we needed to do. So, you know, it's an interesting story. Uh, you know, fast forward, the company was doing about a billion two a year. In 2006, we had made several acquisitions, um, and now we're the largest structural tube producer. When I was approached by a private equity firm called Carlisle, who had bought Wheatland Tube, and they wanted to buy us and they wanted me to run it, I, I really didn't have an interest in that because I, did, I, you know, I had never worked for anybody else except myself, and um, you know, you know, we didn't need to do that. But the intriguing part came when they said, "Look, well, then why don't you own half? We own half." And um, um, we can build it from there. So I did that deal. It was it was good for me. We, we we took out some money myself and my brothers who were already at that point in time far removed from the business. And uh, you know, you know, we built it up into you know now what's the largest tube manufacturer in North America. 
producing over two and a half million tons. But we employed those same things with the with our teammates and the way we treat them and the way we communicate down to the floor level throughout the Wheatland division, and it's made a huge huge difference. So, you know, that's the Coles Notes version of the story. Uh, but it's, um, it's been a remarkable journey, built a lot of friends along the way, and uh, still absolutely have probably even more energy today than I did when I was 19 or 20 doing this. And just it's in our it's in our blood. We love it. That's a great story. Uh, and I love hearing that. I had a question, sort of when does China start coming into the picture and you had mentioned 2006 was the year that you, um, you know, had really grown the company through acquisition and whatnots. And obviously China has been growing, um, as a, as an economy and, and as an exporter throughout the two thousands. But when did China really become an issue for steel producers in the U S or when did you really, when were they really on your radar? Yeah, for our company, Lisa, it depended on the product. So, you know, in 2006, in the structural tubing market, they weren't a really big player. Um, and they're still, they still, they never really got to be a huge player because, it, the, you know, they had, they, they started to gain some access into the market, but they had some severe quality issues. They were, they were falsifying their test certificates. Uh, I got the idea that, that I, you know, I, you know, everything from China, you know, they fake. So I said, let's test their tubing. And we did. And, you know, this isn't stuff that goes into a handrail or, uh, you know, a, a, a fence for a, for a pig farm or a cattle farm. You know, this is stuff that goes into buildings and bridges and, uh, um, you, you know, highway signage and transportation. So I tested their product and it, it, it was so far removed from what they said it was uh, that it sent shockwaves through the industry. And we tested it with independent labs. And it really put cast a, a very dark cloud over the Chinese in terms of uh, uh, the structural tubing market. Now, in other products, and still they, they do come back in the structural market in another way, but in other products like Standard Pipe, they were a, a massive force. In, in 2004 at that time, uh, they had already built up to four or 500,000 tons of standard pipe coming in, into the market. And by 2008, when we um, actually filed and won the case on continuous weld uh, or circular welded pipe against the Chinese, they were up to like 900,000 tons. So, you know, to go from 10,000 tons to 900,000 tons in a span of about five years, uh, you only do that with, with severe, you, you know, deeply discounted pricing. And the only way they could have done that was with state-sponsored, uh, uh, you know, mandate and, and export allowances and rebates and cheap steel and all of those other subsidies we all hear about. But it became, you know, we got to the point where they were, you know, 60, 65 percent of the standard pipe market. At that point, you know, they were also using other products to move their steel into the country. And you hear the commonly referred to whack-a-mole, where, you know, China would you know, get charged with dumping or duties and, and, and evasion tactics on, on certain steel, they would then just send it to other countries or through other operations, tr slightly transform it. And, and now you've got what's called substantial transformation of the original product. It can now move into the U.S. without duties. And that's the, the main flaw in our, our system. We don't trace the parent metal through the chain. Uh, there's a big case right now on Chinese hot rolled that, of course, has duties, but is be and cold rolled uh, that has duties. It's now being shipped to the hot rolls being shipped to Taiwan, which has you know, virtually no 
um, uh, cold world usage in the, in the, in the country. They, they put it through a cold mill uh, and transform it into cold rolled steel. And the Chinese hot rolled enters the U.S. Uh, through Taiwan uh, being transformed into cold rolled steel. So they have many, many schemes and ways to e- evade you know, our duties and our systems. And we, we behave like Boy Scouts and, uh, uh, you know, trust that, uh, you know, people won't do that. They don't have nefarious intentions and, and they really do. But, uh, you know, so to answer your question, you know, and sh- you know, I know I went through a long answer, but essentially the Chinese became a major factor in the early 2000s and have, have, have grown since and have found many, many ways uh, to circumvent you know, the way we, we try to enforce our trade laws and, uh, uh, you know, they just keep doing that. And unless we get serious about it, it, it won't stop. No, I, I, um, I hear you. I think the other piece I want to maybe make mention is it's not just um, the Chinese and specifically, I mean, I don't know if you've been following the Whirlpool uh, case. They have a whole trade case that actually in many respects mimics the steel case except it's for a finished product. And I think that's one of the biggest areas of um, contention or argument on the trade cases. There's been a lot of arguments put forward that, um, you know, this really, these kinds of things, anti-dumping really only help upstream, you know, this whole difference between upstream and downstream manufacturers and the downstream manufacturers, hey, cheap imports is a good thing. It helps them be more competitive. How do you counter arguments like that? And I was hoping you might be able to talk about the Whirlpool case in context of that. I'd love to. I mean, first off, the Whirlpool case, it just highlights what's going on. It's not unique. It happens in many products. Um, certainly, uh, you know, the, the, the Whirlpool case highlights, you know, they're talking about world, uh, the Chinese through LG or, and others or other other equipment coming in from from Korea and that 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 take up twenty percent of the market. I mean, I would I would kill for to just for products to just be twenty percent of the market in terms of import share. And we've got standard pipe that's sixty five percent, OCTG sixty percent, line pipe seventy percent. Uh, certainly, even in flat rolled uh, you know products combined at a time that their percentages were extremely high. You know, remember the U.S. market. Uh, if you take total steel imports, are you know roughly thirty five percent of the market, which is atrocious, and in a market that has capacity and has the ability uh, to fill the void. Now, you know, it's one thing to sit there and say, well, you know, everybody's worried about the consumer. You know, well, the consumer gets a cheaper uh, a cheaper product. I, I have to tell you that, um, do they really? I mean, what's the real cost to the consumer of that product? They might get a headline cheaper price on the product, but A, um, I don't think they're getting as good of a product, and that's arguable, but B, what happens to the communities that they live in that surround them, and what's the cost of what happens to those communities? You know, we all sit here and talk about, um, you know, that, that real wages haven't gone up. Real wages haven't gone up because the real high-wage jobs have disappeared and are disappearing. Uh, you, you know, there's a, a, a vast amount of the population that are not meant to work in Silicon Valley. Uh, they're, they're meant to work in a factory and, and earn a good living doing that. And they can. But, you know, those, those communities where those jobs disappear from, now you've got social assistance, you've got job retraining, you've got unemployment, you've got food stamps, you've got crime, 
You've got you know the property devaluation, the tax base erosion. So you, we're paying for this one way or another. We're, we're paying for it in our taxes. We're paying for it in our national debt, which someday will will come to roost, and and, and we'll have to foot the bill, and we already are. Uh, what happens to the, these communities for healthcare, where the companies were paying it? I mean, our company alone spends thirty-five million dollars in in benefits a year, and we're we you know we're proud to do that and, and take care of our teammates. But the Chinese companies don't; they don't care. So you know, our, we're paying for these cheap products one way or another, and, and quite frankly, they cost a lot more than everybody thinks. And, you know, the end consumer needs cheaper goods because their real income hasn't gone up. So everybody's searching for the cheaper deal at, at Walmart or, or at, at one of these stores, and they need to save every penny because they haven't had real income growth. And they haven't had real income growth because we've lost those real income jobs. And, you know, you've got kids graduating from university now that are, you know, they're baristas at Starbucks. And, you know, everyone talks again about the consumer and the consumer saving money. Well, you know, believe me, they'll spend money on, the, on, on certain things. They have no problem doing that. And it's evidenced by going to Starbucks and buying a $4 latte when they can make a cup of coffee at home for 20 cents. So if they really want to save money, you know, that's it. It's the convenience of the product that's gotten here. And it's, it's the lure of it and, and the high of this little savings here. But really, when you add up the equation, we're losing and and we're paying way more than we can ever imagine. I appreciate you making the bigger argument. And I think that is also uh, one of the things we're trying to do with this series is really talk about sort of the hidden stories. And I don't think that's discussed very often. So kind of changing gears slightly, but just I kind of want to move. And I know you are, you're a Canadian citizen, but your company is headquartered here in Chicago. Is that right? It is. And Lisa, can I just add one thing sure. to that consumer, you know, consumer argument? This is a comment uh, that I read yesterday in the Wall Street Journal from Wilbur Ross. Uh, as to the fact that there are more users than there are makers of steel, that's true. But there's not any reason to think that the consuming industries deserve dumped product. That's what a lot of them have been living off of, subsidized dumped product. That's not a great solution. That's not a valid business or basis to build a business. So unless you adopt a theory that we should let everything be subsidized and come in and destroy all of our industry, then you have to draw the line somewhere. And I, I think that quote really sums up you know, what, the, what the problem is. Interesting. So, sorry, I just had to. Great. Right. Now I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate it. Uh, so speaking of Wilbur Ross, and I know that you are. Well, actually, I'm not sure if you're a Canadian citizen. I'm assuming you're a Canadian citizen, but just now you're I kind am. of okay. Looking at sort of obviously here in the U.S., you do tremendous business here in the U.S. You're headquartered here in the U.S. What's your take on what you'd like to see the Trump administration do on trade in general? And maybe you can just give some commentary around the Section 232, 301, whatever. <laughs> Sure. I, I mean, I, I think we should, you know, highlight the point that yes, I am a Canadian, and I started my business in Canada, uh, shipping both to Canada and the U.S. I, I, I'm here today because of free trade, and 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 very proud that our two countries are, are are able to do that and conduct, you know, pretty much a balanced trade between Canada and the U.S. Uh, uh, that we have. There's some areas of issue, but in general, we have balanced trade. 
So, you know, I, I'm living proof that that free trade can create great things for America. I have one plant in Canada and I have 15 in the U.S. It's where all our growth has been, where all our expansion has been. It's where the market is and it's where we've, you know, we've concentrated our efforts. And, and you know, through the many, many years that we've been in business, employed, you know, we employ thousands of people now uh, in, in the U.S. And that all came from a, a humble beginning in Canada. And, and having a, a trade agreement and being able to ship freely and fairly across, our, you know, our borders. I, you know, I would like to see. And so, so, again, I'm a proponent of free trade. I just want fair trade. I, I will compete against any company. And if they beat me that fair and square, then, you know, God bless them. They win. But I can't compete against a government with, you know, varying agendas. So what we would like to see the Trump administration do, and in general on trade, is level the playing field properly. You know, we need to start properly enforcing our trade laws. You know, we have a, we have a case right now that we won against Chinese um, uh, octagonal tubing coming in for solar arrays that we won and, and established duties on. Yet in the past 12 months, $100 million of this tubing has come into this country and customs hasn't charged duty. We sued, you know, we, we, we put in a complaint and customs said, we can't tell you if they charge duty, if we charge duty or not. I said, well, how do we know if you did? We know, we know they didn't because they never would have been able to sell that product, but they won't even go after them. So, you know, here we've won the case, invested millions of dollars, and there's about $80 million of duty that never got collected. So, you know, first and foremost, we need to enforce the trade laws that are on the books and do it properly. Uh, we, we definitely need to close down loopholes, one of them being the substantial transformation loophole. You know, you have to follow the, 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 the parent uh, metal that, you know, in, case, in the case of steel and other things that are put into the product and then, you, you know, used into a final product to circumvent the duties. Case in point is Mexico. Mexico has an auto industry, not so much because of labor, but because Mexico allows parts to come into their country duty-free that otherwise would have been dutiable coming into Canada and the U.S. They get assembled into cars, and those cars come over the border without duty because of, of NAFTA. And they then meet the 62% manufactured in, 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 within the NAFTA origin rule. So all of these duties are circumvented by assembling the car and creating, you know, a substantial transformation and they ship it into the U S you know, at the cost of, of U S jobs and, 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 and jobs that otherwise would have been here in the plants that would have had to make those parts here. So there's so many ways to game the system uh, that, that we need to attack those ways and close those loopholes. And it would be you know, a tremendous boom here. Those are high-paying jobs. Those are great-paying jobs that would uh, you know, otherwise cha- you know, change the landscape of what's going on here. Sure, we have 4% you know, un- unemployment. But again, you know, what are the wage scales of that unemployment, you know, of, of those employed? We would you know, far exceed that with high-paying manufacturing jobs and factories in the communities. If we were doing, if we were doing that here, we could we could elevate the pay scale of of everybody in the United States. So, in regards to two thirty two, I think they need to take a strong stance as to the sheer amount of steel coming in here. We have capacity. We have very efficient capacity. Uh, you know, in many cases, some of the product I make. Uh, 
uh, we take a, a ton of steel and make it into a ton of tubing for less than the ocean freight it costs from, from Turkey, from South Korea, uh, from Japan, uh, and from China. So you can't tell me putting those same ingredients in that it's a labor issue. Labor is a tiny component of, of the product we make uh, in terms of, in terms of the cost. So they're beating us through subsidies, but we need to limit, you know, put a, put a hard limit on the amount of product that comes in. And then we also need to close the back door and look at materials or, or, or finished goods that are made primarily of steel, uh, and, and steel related products, i.e. beams, channel, fabricated assemblies, and, and look at the high content of steel in that and impose a duty on that, that steel-related value of those goods. And I, I think you'll see a dramatic change in, in what goes on here in the steel industry. You know, an industry that has been, you know, beat up, beat up upon for decades. And, uh, you know, everyone says, well, the poor steel industry. Look, we've got the most efficient steel industry in the world. Nucor, Steel Dynamics, Big River, um, you know, certainly even the integrateds that have made massive changes to their operations, they can't beat us. We produce steel for 0.4 man hours per ton. So no one does it better. So we should have the opportunity to to reap the rewards of that uh, in our own country. Right. So let me just touch on a Mexico development because I thought this was interesting. I know it doesn't apply for stainless, but I've noted that Mexico's implemented, if I'm not mistaken, an import duty on any product that comes into its country that is not from a quote-unquote country in which Mexico has a free trade agreement, so specifically North Korea and China. Um, is that? And this is only from the next 180 days, starting on October 18th, and it's been, um, you know, do measures like that help? Are they just stopgap? Is it because we're waiting for, do you think, you know, NAFTA reform or? Well, I, I think it could be all of the above. It could also be a test case, right? What does this really do to, to you know, uh, our, our business climate and our ability, you know, for, for the, the producers here uh, uh, to operate? So, you know, in, in the case of, of us, two, 232 could be, a, you know, it could be a test also. I mean, put it in, put some pressure back on 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 these guys who are abusing our 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 you know our our trade laws and of course our our markets and 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 see how it reacts. I, I, I mean, also you know, there's the problem that we have is again I, I mentioned it earlier. We are Boy Scouts, so you know we sit there and worry about the WTO. I mean, the WTO is a farce. We you know we we conduct eighteen or twenty billion dollars or twenty trillion dollars of GDP a year, uh, the, the, the biggest, you know, economic engine on the planet. And yet we have one vote at the WTO. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, the WTO is designed to take advantage of America and, and its markets. It's, it's designed to go against anything that, that is really positive for America. And, and it's shown, it's shown by most of the decisions that happen at the WTO. So, I, I think we need to, you know, quite frankly, I'd pull out of it. You, you know, I, 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 I'd leave. And, and I, think, I think we need to because it doesn't do anything for us anyways. And, or at least threaten to leave and make changes to it that are appropriate. So, you know, we've got a long way to go. We need to take some bold, hard stances. I think, 
you know, while people view Donald Trump as as being a bully, he's not being a bully. He he's doing what should have been done many many years ago by people and politicians who were pushovers and who were bought by special interest and who didn't want to take a stance and who were who were not brave enough to ruffle feathers and they weren't brave enough to make the hard decisions and and look look where it's ended up it's ended up in, into the erosion of our middle class and that needs to change and and you know what it's not about everybody else you can't help the world if you can't help yourself so and we can't help ourselves by being 20 trillion dollars in debt we need to change that and we need to change it fast. Right. No, I appreciate um, your comments here. One, one follow-up, and I don't even know if you care to do this, but do you, would you care to speculate on what you think will happen with 232? So this is not what we'd like to see, but what do you think will actually happen? I think something will happen. I think there will be a hybrid solution uh, uh, based on various products that are, that are meaningfully being imported here and, and markets that are meaningfully, meaningfully being infiltrated and abused. Um, I, you know, I, I do believe that will happen. Look, let me make something clear. I'm not sitting here crying poor. Our company does well. The question is, is how much better could we do? How much more could we do? You know, why are we worried about people being employed in South Korea in some you know, engine that was built just to export their steel when we've got people that are looking for jobs and looking for higher incomes here. It's not about Zeckelman Industries. It's about communities. I would be proud to have another thousand teammates working for us, making 50, 60, 80 grand, 100 grand a year and having their, their, their health care covered and having a 401k contribution. That's what this is about. We have people who need that. And we have the ability to make that change. And we have the ability to fix these communities and build stronger companies like ours that will then take that money and reinvest. I mean, I don't know what people think we do with that money. I mean, we, we spend it. We spend it on equipment. We spend it on innovation. We spend it on salaries and on wages uh, and, and on training for people. So that's what this is about. You know, so, and we can't let the continuous you know, erosion of companies and markets that, like ours that we participate in, you know, continue to happen because we're going to be left with a huge void here. And we already have it in, in many industries and, and steel in part is, is, is one of them uh, that we won't be able to fill. And, and we won't be able to fill, you know, through government programs or job retraining or other industries quick enough. You know, you, you're going to flick the switch in the, in the room and the lights will go off and you won't be able to turn them back on again. No, I, I appreciate you saying that. Do you, I guess I have maybe one open-ended follow-up and one kind of quick question. I'm not sure if you even want to get into it, but one of the big arguments, and I'm sure you've heard all the arguments, and I know we've been to conferences and we've heard sort of the, um, you know, the downstream argument and the value-add argument, you know, for manufacturers taking advantage of lower-cost imports. How do you... There's also, I think, an unasked question in at least our readership in the metal miner community. Don't imports keep domestic prices in check? And I know we've touched on it a little bit, but I mean, should people expect prices to skyrocket if there are some significant 232, we call it a hybrid solution that goes into effect? What would we expect to see from a pricing standpoint? 
You know, pr- pretty interesting when, when, when people look at it that way. So keeping prices in check, that's an interesting scenario. So let me ask you a question uh, or make a statement, really. I remember my dad had a Cadillac uh, many years ago when I was a young man. Uh, I think he paid $7,000 for it. And I can tell you that, you know, a Cadillac today is probably around 70 or 80 I can tell you that when I started in the steel business, I bought steel. The lowest I bought steel for was $0.10 cents a pound, so $200 a ton. So today, steel is $600 a ton, three, three times what it was. Yet that Cadillac is 10 times what it was. So you know, when you look across the board at everything consumers buy, all right, and that whole consumer argument, Houses are more expensive. Uh, the washing machines that we're talking about are more expensive. You know, almost everything's gone up except one thing if, if, in real terms. Steel. Steel has been the most abused product on the planet because every country feels they need a steel industry for national security, you know, and for national interest to be able to build their infrastructure and survive and have an industrial uh, 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 you know, uh, um, an industrial uh, segment of their economy. So steel has been grotesquely abused in the trade market. So that, that whole consumer argument of, oh, the prices will go up with steel. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about a building, a skyscraper that gets built, uh, you know, a $200 million skyscraper with 30,000 tons of steel in it. All right. So what happens if the price of steel in that skyscraper goes up by $100 a ton, right? 30,000 tons times $100 a ton is $3 million. So the $200 million skyscraper goes up by 1.5%. And that's, that's if it's $100 a ton. Do you understand what $100 a ton would do to the steel industry? It would change the face of the steel industry in the U.S. forever. You're talking about 70, 80,000 tons. We'd be now producing 100 million tons. So look at the tax revenue that would come, come from that. Look at the wage increases that would come with that. Look at the spinoff jobs that would come with another 20 million tons of steel being produced in North America and that price rise. And do you think that office tower wouldn't get built because of the $3 million of extra steel going into it? Nope. Not a chance. Exactly. So, so that whole consumer argument or a car. Let's just talk about the car companies that received, what, $100 billion of bailout of actual money put into it to save them so this, and now making record profits? So a car that has one ton of steel in it, if the price goes up $100 a ton, that, that $70,000 car or even that $30,000 car is going to go up by $100 and that's going to hurt the end consumer? I think the benefits of not having to take your your pension obligations and thrust them on the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation in, in the US or the bankruptcies that that have happened in the steel mills I think the or the or the the towns where those industries have closed far outweigh the $100 a car right that those automakers uh, uh, could could pay uh, you know, you know, based on they give three, three, four, seven, eight thousand dollar discounts on cars, and they're going to complain about a hundred dollars more for steel. I got to tell you something. Shame on them. They should be embarrassed 
They took money from the taxpayers to, to save their butts, and they don't want to absorb $100 a ton to save the American steel industry. They should be ashamed of themselves. It's disgusting. It's a very persuasive argument. Barry, is there anything that we didn't touch on that we think is really pertinent to the dialogue that you wanted to add before we kind of close out our discussion? I think we need swift action. And I think we need bold action. And I think we need somebody with the guts to play Texas Hold'em poker. We haven't had that. We've had everybody placate to the you know, and, 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 and bow down to the special interests and, and all these. I mean, right now, there's, there's, there's a big talk that you know, the farm lobby is upset about potential 232s because it'll create uh, trade retaliation on farmed goods. Well, I got news. I got news for you. Great. Why don't you give up the subsidies you've had for for decades in the in the farm industry? Why don't you give it to the steel industry if you're so well off? I mean, give it to us. All right. See how you like operating without without subsidies. You know that enable you to export your product and and do these things. Give it to the steel industry. You know we don't want subsidies. We don't want handouts. We don't want a dime. What we want is fair trade, free and fair trade. And we want the abuse of our systems to stop. That's all we're asking for. We don't want a dime from the government. That's awesome. Barry, thank you so much for joining us and uh, coming by our offices this afternoon. My pleasure. I appreciate you uh, letting me take the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share with a colleague or a friend. You can also follow our podcast on SoundCloud. And don't forget to check out our coverage of trade policy and what it means for metal buying organizations on our website, metalminer.com. Have a great week.